Well, welcome to the first Sunday in Advent. Advent is the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas. It's a Latin word. It means to, to come or to arrive. And it's a time traditionally in the church of Jesus when we prepare ourselves for Christmas. Now, I don't know how often this happens to you, but all of a sudden, boom, it's Christmas. Stuff is just happening and happening and things are so busy and there's so much going on. And then all of a sudden it's Christmas morning. And we take this month, these four Sundays before Christmas to prepare ourselves so that, yep, it's still busy and yep, there's still a lot to do. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I got extra stuff on my calendar up, down, left and right. Elizabeth and I have a, a joke because things get very busy in the church that we say goodbye on thank, at Thanksgiving and we say hello again at 7 p.m. on the 24th, right after this service is over. Because there's just stuff going on so often. You know, we were talking this morning at 6.30, like, okay, I'll see you in about 13 hours because that's just the way the day is going to go. We don't want to just show up at, at Christmas morning and not be prepared. So we're going to take these next four weeks in Advent, and we're going to do that story that everybody knows, that story of a young woman who travels a long way to Bethlehem and gives birth to a son, her firstborn son, who will grow up to save his family, the story of Ruth. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth. It's in the Old Testament. It's way back. It's not one of the, first, the big five, but it's pretty soon after that. Joshua judges Ruth. And it is kind of a little mini foreshadowing of the Christmas story. Because the Christmas story is the story of God's salvation of the world. And it culminates, of course, in the birth of Jesus at Bethlehem. And Ruth is the story of God's salvation of one family in Israel. And it culminates in the birth of a child in Bethlehem. And so we're going to work our way through. Ruth has four chapters and there's four Sundays in Advent. It, it was obviously destined to be. So follow along with me. I'm going to read to you Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian die, also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we'll go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why should you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? 
No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud, then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Lord has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So in any good story, you got to have an intro that sets it up. You got to set the stage. You got to introduce the characters. You got to tell us what the problem is. I mean, there's got to be a problem for you to have this story. What, what, what's the problem? How are we going to solve it? And so that's how the book of Ruth begins. The first five verses are the introduction. We're told, in the days when the judges ruled. If you have a Bible reading plan, that should mean something to you. Because those were bad days. <laughs> they were really bad days. If you're reading through the Bible sequentially, you just finished. When you get to Ruth, you just finished the book of Judges. And wow, is there a bad taste in your mouth. The book of Judges is a horrible time when everything goes wrong and then you get to the end of the book, you get through all the Judges and you think, can it get any worse? And the author for the last few chapters just pulls out these couple stories. Let me tell you about what happened with this family. Let me tell you about what happened with this town. And, and it, it's horrific. It's the kind of stuff you think, why did anyone put this in the Bible? They lived in the time when the judges ruled. That's a bad time. And there was a famine in the land. So it's a bad time and bad things are happening. These people live in terrible, terrible times. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah. So we know he's from the tribe of Judah. We know he lives in the town of Bethlehem together with his wife and two sons. Went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, again, if you're a good Jewish reader, we don't know exactly when this was written. We know it's hundreds of years after the story takes place because this is happening in probably the 1300s BC, and the author writing it mentions David, who lives in 1000 BC. So this is being written a long time later, but let's imagine it's written around the time of David and you're reading it. That ought to make you wonder. They went to live for a while. You're not supposed to go live in other countries. Like, he's a man from Bethlehem, from the tribe of Judah. That's his inheritance. He's supposed to stay there. That's what the law of Moses says. We're, we're, we're 100 years or so past the time of Moses. They have the law. If they want to, they can know what God has said. You're not supposed to go leave your inheritance. God gave it to you. It's yours. God will take care of you. If there's a famine, you're supposed to look to God. God will provide for you. God will explain to you what you need to do. You're not supposed to go live in another country, but at least it says for a while. Literally, it says they went to sojourn. That's a word we don't really use in English anymore. To sojourn somewhere means you go, but you're not going to stay there. You're going to live there for a while, but you're not going to assimilate. 
When we were missionaries, we lived in Africa for 10 years. But in the language of the Bible, we were sojourners. We didn't become African. Even though we spoke French, as soon as you walked out the door, you spoke French everywhere. But in our home, we spoke English. We raised our kids speaking English. And when we walked out the door of our home, we wore African clothes. And when we ate, we ate African food. But in our house, I wore shorts and a t-shirt. And we ate American food. We were sojourners. We st- we're we're going to stay for a while, but we weren't going to stay forever. It was just for a period of time. They're sojourning, we told in Moab. That, that ought to make Ken be like, well, that's not really good. You're not supposed to go, but okay, I guess there was a famine. Like, okay, something's, something's going on. They're from Ephrathah, so now we know their clan. We know more and more about these people. They go to live in Moab. Verse 3, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. So obviously, that's bad. That's, that's more bad. It starts out bad, and now we've got more bad. But she's left with her two sons. They married Moabite women. Now, you know that point in every horror movie when one of a crowd of people turns to the other and says, I've got a great idea. Let's split up. <laughs> and you go, no, don't split up. That's this point in the story. Like the author's just running us through this. This is the point at which you're supposed to go, no, don't marry Moabite girls. They're not sojourning. They haven't gone to stay for a little while and then come back when the famine's over. They are living in Moab. They are becoming Moabites. This is absolutely forbidden in the law of God. You can absolutely not Give your children in marriage to someone who is not a Jew. Like going to Moab, that's, that's not right, but maybe, I, you know, extreme circumstances. This is absolutely wrong. The, the, this is the point at which you go, oh, oh, they don't actually care a bit about God and his law. They, they, they don't care about being Jewish. They're going to live in Moab. They're, they're marrying Moabites. They're, they're connecting their families. You know, they don't marry for love and companionship. It's a business transaction. They're connecting Elimelech's family with Ruth's father's family and Orpah's father's family, and and they're uniting them together. And the the children that they have, that Ruth and Kilion have, that that connects those families again even more. It's like, oh, I get it. (laughs) These guys have moved to Moab. They're not interested in being Jews anymore. It's not important to them. And then we find out in verse 5, here's the real problem. Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. We don't know who wrote Ruth, but it's really poignant the way the author writes it. Verse 3, like literally as you're reading along the Hebrew text in verse 3, it says, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she remained, she and her two sons. And then in verse 5, again, if you're literally reading along the text, it says that they died And Naomi remained a woman apart from children and husband. And that's really the problem, that she is a woman alone. This is a culture where there are no individuals. Like, it's not weird at all in our world to know that, oh, someone lives lives alone. They have an apartment. They live by themselves. You you go to college. Oh, do you know you have a double, a triple, or a single? Do you live by themselves? Nobody in this world lives by themselves. You can't. There's no bank accounts. There's no government that provides you. There's no services. There's no nothing. No one can be a 
apart from family in this world. And Naomi is a woman alone. She's a woman apart. And, and th- this is where the story starts. That's the end of the intro. Now we jump into the story. This is our problem, that Naomi lives, she's not a Moabite, and her sons never had children. If her sons had had kids, that would be a connection in Moab. Those Ruth's dad and Orpah's dad, those families would still have some responsibility to her, but they didn't have children. So there's no connection at all. She is alone. And she's got one choice, and that's to go back home, go back to family. She can't live alone in Moab by herself. She's got to go back where someone's obligated to look out for her, where someone, where she has land, she has a place to live that, that someone will help her and she won't be alone. And so she's got to go back to Israel. And fortunately, it turns out we know there's food in Israel. So she heads out to go back to Israel and her daughters-in-law dutifully go with her. And she very kindly tells them, go home, girls, because there's nothing for you here. They're not, they're not Jewish. They're not going to do well going back into the land of Judah. She sends them home. She sends them home saying in verse 11, basically, I have nothing to offer you. Don't come with me because I'm alone. I have no connections. I have nothing I can offer you. Why would you come with me, she says in verse 11. Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Naomi needs to be reconnected to family. So she needs a husband, she needs children, and neither of those is going to happen because she's past marrying age and she's past childbearing age. She says, go home, girls. I have nothing for you. Why? Why does she tell her daughters-in-law, I have nothing? In verse 13, no, my daughters, it's more bitter. Hang on to that word. She'll use it a lot. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Whose fault is it that all these bad things have happened? Oh, it's God's. Of course it's God's. Does it matter that she's completely ignored God for at least 10 years, maybe more? Again, the authors told us at the beginning of this story, these guys don't care about the law. They're not interested. They don't care about their inheritance that God gave them. They don't care about the law. They've moved. They've gone. They're going to be Moabites. She has ignored God and God's law for at least a decade, if not more. But it's God's fault. And she will double down on this. When she gets back to Jerusalem in verse 20, and people are like, oh my gosh, is is that Naomi? I mean, after all this time, is she back? Where's Elimelech? Where's the boys? She's like, don't call me Naomi. That means pleasant in Hebrew. She says, call me Mara. That's bitter. Again, she uses bitter a lot. She uses Mara a lot. Call me Mara because the Lord has made my life very Mara. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. You know, Elimelech in Hebrew means my God is king. El God e my Melech, king, Elimelech. My God is king. And that's a joke (laughs) because the author tells us at the beginning, these guys don't care a whit about God. They're not following God. They're not doing God's law. They're not doing the things God has told them to do. His name means, oh yeah, God is king. 
but it's the time of the judges when everybody does whatever they want. And that's what Elimelech's family's doing. They're doing whatever they want. And when things go bad, oh, God has harmed me. God has done bad for me. It's God's fault. I've ignored God all my life, and it's God's fault that these bad things have befallen me. Okay, I want to be careful. The woman has lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She's a refugee. I have been a refugee. When we were missionaries, we had to flee somewhere because of a war. Like, I have had to just get a suitcase and go. And I know how incredibly traumatic that was. Not to mention trying to do that if my family had been killed as well. I fully expect to meet this woman one day in Jesus' kingdom. I do not want her coming to be like, oh, you're the guy who preached that sermon about me, weren't you? Right? I do not want to minimize her pain. I have not experienced a fraction of the grief that this woman has experienced. And again, she lives in a culture where it's even worse. Not just losing your spouse and your children, but she cannot live alone. It is simply not possible in her world. I have never experienced anything even close to what she's experiencing. I am not trying to say that she is wrong about her pain, but I am saying that she's not right about reality. She is not seeing the world for what it really is and what's really going on. I went away full, she says. Why did they leave? Because there was no food. She wasn't full when she left. She was starving. There wasn't food to eat. So they had to move to another country. Different language, different customs, different religion. I went away full. She says, no. Like she, she, we all do this. She's looking back and seeing the good old days. When, oh, I had a husband and I had children. Yes, absolutely. That is absolutely true. Again, I do not want to minimize the pain of her loss. But she did not leave full. And notice, I left full. The Lord brought me back empty. God doesn't get credit for her being full. He just gets credit for her being empty. She doesn't say, oh, the Lord had filled me and given me a good life, and now he's taken it away. She says, I had a good life. I was full, and the Lord took it away. It's a bummer being God. I mean, you, 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 you get credit for all the bad things that happen, even though he told us, don't eat from that tree. It will be bad even though he gave them the law and told them how to live, and Elimelech has said, no thanks, I'll go my own way. I'll do what I want. Oh, look, it went really badly. God, you're so awful. How could you treat me like this? God gets all the credit for anything bad that happens. He gets no credit for anything good that happens. We had a woman in our church about 10 years ago. She had a form, just an awful form of stomach cancer. Uh, the odds of living six months were less than 1%. But she had things she wanted to do before she died. She had things she wanted to do with her family, with her kids. She had some very specific things she wanted to have happen with her kids that she could do before she died. And we prayed and prayed and prayed for her. And the Lord did not heal her completely. Well, I suppose at this point, actually, he has healed her completely. 
But in that time, he did not heal her completely. But she lived for two years, which I believe at the time was the longest anyone had ever lived with that disease. So you, you had a less than 1% chance of living six months. She lived two years. I was talking to a guy, you know, again, you meet somebody in a coffee shop. He'd grown up Christian. Now he was an atheist. And I'm, he was saying, I don't believe in miracles. And so I was telling him about this woman's life. I'm like, look, less than a 1% chance of living six, six months, but we prayed and prayed and prayed for her. She lived for two years. Don't you think that's a miracle? He's like, oh, no, of course not. That's not a miracle. I mean, less than 1% doesn't mean zero. Right? It means, you know, one out of 200 people will live six. She's the one out of 200. And the fact that she lived longer than anybody else, our medicine's always getting better. I bet 10 years from now, people will live two, two or three years. It won't be unusual. That's not a miracle. That's just probability. She's way, way, way at one end of the probability scale. But somebody's got to be there. You can't argue that. Right? That is, it is possible that she's so far out on the end of the probability scale, we can't see it. It's also possible that we asked an all-powerful God to do something, and he did it. Which, you know, if, if I ask you, hey, could you drop this off at my house, and it shows up at my house, well, maybe it randomly showed up there. That is possible. Or maybe you did what I asked you to do. I, you know, you decide which one is better. But as we talked, I was talking, you know, why, you, you grew up as a Christian, why'd you leave the faith? Like, I think it was his mom died. His mom died or his sister died. Someone died, and he's furious at God. Oh, he's so angry that God took away his mom or his sister or whoever it was. God gets no credit for the incredible good things that you see. Oh, but he's such a terrible person. Because in a fallen world where we continually go our own way and do whatever we want, a world that scripture says is ruled by Satan, a being that wants nothing more than to do as much harm as he possibly can. He knows he's going down at the end of time and he wants to take everyone he can with him. In that world, the fact that something bad happens to me, oh, that's just because God is such a jerk. Naomi looks at her life and she's not, she's not looking at it correctly. I mean, the pain she sees in her life is absolutely real. That, that is all true. But she doesn't see anything else. I went away full. I came back empty. That's verse 21. I came back empty. What does the author say in verse 22? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth. She's not coming back empty. We don't know where she lived in Moab. So it's somewhere between a week and two weeks of walking for her to get here. And she didn't walk that alone. There was someone with her every single step of the way. Listen to what Ruth says to her in verse 16. Naomi says to Ruth, go back to your gods. Go back to the gods of Moab. Go back to the people of Moab. Go back and be a Moabite who worships the God of Moab. And Ruth says, stop urging me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And when you die, I will die and there I will be buried. And may the Lord, and your Bible probably has that in all caps because that's God's name in Hebrew, Yahweh, 
She's taking an oath in the name of the God of Israel. May Yahweh deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. I'm not just going to stick with you. I'm going to stick with you till you die, and then I'm still going to stay there so I can be buried next to you. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. I went away full. I've come back empty. She cannot see the greatest gift that God has given her, that has walked next to her for at least a week, out of her own country and her own language and her own people. She can't see Ruth, who has rejected her own people, who has converted to Judaism. Your gods will be my gods, and I take my oaths in the name of Yahweh, the God of the Jews, our God. I'm empty. I have nothing. Naomi says about God, you notice, God doesn't actually do anything in this chapter, at least according to the author. The author doesn't say, and God killed Elimelech for his sin, and God killed the sons, and God, I mean, maybe he did, we don't know. It's just simply not said. But in this chapter, God has done nothing. But wow, Naomi has attributed to him all sorts of horrible things. And she has completely ignored all the good things she used to have and the incredible things she has standing right next to her. Naomi has said over and over in the story, God is a jerk who wants nothing more than to harm me. And God will spend the rest of this book being kind to Naomi through Ruth. Naomi says, chapter 1, verse 11, am I going to have any more sons? Spoilers, chapter 4, verse 17, the women living in Bethlehem said, Naomi has a son. Am I ever going to have more children? Yes, she is, but not the way she thinks. Naomi has a problem. Again, it's a real problem. Her pain, it's all real. But all she can see is her pain, and all she can see is one solution to her problem, which is impossible. She's not going to get remarried, and she's not going to have more kids. That is humanly, physically impossible. And she cannot see a God who doesn't care two wits about the words humanly or physically, or the word possible. She will have more children through Ruth. Am I ever going to have any more sons? She says. No. Again, spoilers. Those women who say Naomi has a son, about that son, he said, your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Naomi can see one solution to her problem, and it's impossible, and she has given up. And wow, God has not given up on her. She is cursing him. And he is planning how to be good to her. He is planning how to save her. He is planning. He is working all the way through this book. God never actually does anything officially in this book until the very end, the last column of chapter four. And over and over again, stuff will just happen. They'll happen to meet this guy. They'll happen to go. Naomi says, oh, I went away full. I came back empty. When she left, there was no food. When does she come back? Just as the barley harvest 
was beginning. When she left, nothing was growing. And when she came back, there is grain as far as the eye can see. And she says, God, you're such a jerk. And God pretty much completely ignores her and is kind to her anyway. And gosh, I love this book <laughs> because you just see God being gracious to someone who does not deserve it. Because isn't that all of our stories? That God is gracious and kind to us over and over and over again, even when we curse him, even when we call him a complete jerk, even when we blame him for everything. The whole rest of this book is God working to solve Naomi's problems in a way that Naomi cannot possibly conceive of. Again, I do not want to minimize her pain or her problems. They are all real. I just want to say, but there's a lot more going on that she doesn't want to see. So the Advent wreath has four candles in it, each for a different week. There's a bunch of different systems of, of how people light the candles. There's, there's a couple traditional ones like love, hope, joy, and peace, and you talk about those. There's one that has the people. So there's Zechariah and Mary and Joseph and the wise men. And, but, but we're going to do candles through the book of Ruth. And so I'm going to light the first candle, and we're going to call it the candle of loss. Because, Wow. Naomi lost a lot. I mean, again, I don't want to miss that, the last line of the introduction. Naomi remained a woman alone, a woman apart from husband or children. Naomi has lost a lot. I don't know what 2023 was like for you. It was not a good year in the Jansen household. This is not going to go down in the annals of, oh, wow, let's have that year. You know, Groundhog Day, let's have that year again. Um, this was a hard year for us. And lots of those hard things aren't going to stop on January 1st of 2024. But at the same time, I don't want to be Naomi. I don't want to just see the hard. I don't want to look back on the past and say, oh wow, 2020, COVID, yeah, if only we could go back to those days, right? I don't know what 2023 was like for you. I hope it was fabulous and you're really sorry it's ending because it was so good. But wow, that was not true in our family. Um, this was definitely a year with losses in it. But it was also a year with a gracious and a kind God. And I don't want to miss that. And it's easy to, isn't it? It's easy to miss the kind and the gracious God. When things go wrong, it's easy to look at the past and say, oh, the, the good old days, and where is God, and why is this happening? And Naomi's pain is real, her loss is real, her problem is real. But wow, we get to read the story. We know God is at work. Ruth has been walking beside her. Ruth is gonna solve all of her problems. Like what God is going to do through this young girl who has pledged her allegiance to him and to Naomi. Wow, it's phenomenal. If you have had a hard year, if this is, if for you, this is also a year of loss, amen. I totally understand, but let's not be Naomi. Let's not just look at the loss. Let's also look at the God 
The God who has filled us over and over again. A God who has done these incredible things for us. If, if this is a candle of loss for you in 2023, then make sure that you're looking at the year with your eyes wide open. That you're not missing all of the good things that God did for you. That you're not missing all the ways that, yep, here's this problem. I don't see any possible solution to that. God is not constrained by possible. He is certainly not constrained by what Jeff thinks is possible. He is going to do the miraculous and the incredible for Naomi. He is going to save her. He is going to take care of her. He is going to redeem her. Even though she's paid no attention to her, as near as we can, him, as near as we can tell, for years, and wow, she's angry at him now. He doesn't seem to care. He's just a good and a kind and a gracious God. Whatever this year has been like for you, wow, view it rightly. You have a good God. You have a powerful God. You have a God who can solve problems in ways you could never expect. Paul will say that to you, Ephesians. The God is a God who does more than we could possibly even imagine. We can't even think of the ways that God can solve our problems. We can't even conceive of the ways that God can be good to us. And he will be because he delights in it. Because he loves to be good. Because scripture says he loves to give good gifts to his children. Whatever your year has been like, I'm going to pray over us. And I just want you to take a minute as I am praying to look at your year. To remember all of the good things that the Lord has done for you. Not to be like, now, I went away empty. Well, I went away full. Actually, you were starving. I came back empty. Well, actually, Ruth has doggedly protected you on this journey and will continue to. Remember your God. Remember all the good things that he has done for you. And if you have problems looming on the horizon that you cannot possibly think of how this can be solved, who thought in like 3 B.C., some unwed Jewish girl walking to Bethlehem and having a baby, that that was the start of the salvation of the world. That that was the beginning of God's plan to save the planet, to defeat evil. When Jesus was crucified, who thought that was a good day? And yet scripture says he triumphed over evil. He scorned it. He abused it by hanging on that cross and dying. We serve a God who can solve any problem, anytime he wants, any way he wants. As I pray over us, remember all of the good things that God has done, even in the midst. Again, we don't ignore the bad. It's all real. But we remember our good God as well. And if you got problems that can't be solved, then tell him, hey, God, you're going to have to impress me. Because I don't see how in the world this is possibly going to get done. But you are not bound by what I can see. So let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thank you. Uh, just think of what the psalmist says. That, that you are powerful and that you are kind. Thank you that you are powerful and kind. Wow. We, we just see the beginnings of that in Naomi's story today. As she curses you for being just a terrible person, and yet completely ignores the truth. I came back empty. 
And yet she came back with a daughter-in-law who is just devoted to her. She thinks your hand is against her and you are harming her. And everything we'll see in this book will be you being good to her and kind to her. Lord, we want to we be people that see, see the truth. That we don't want to be people who ignore the bad or the evil, who pretend like it's not there, who pretend like there's no loss, that, that somehow we have to smile all the time. We want to be people of the truth, that there is loss and there is pain. This world is fallen. There is an evil being who wants to do us harm. All that is true. But it is also true that you are a good and a kind God. It is also true that Scripture says you are always at work for good. You were clearly at work for good in Naomi's life through Ruth. Lord, give us eyes to see. Don't let us just dwell on what we have lost. Don't let us look at the past and think that it was better than it really was. Don't let us ignore all of your kindness because we will. You know, we're no better than Elimelech. You, 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 you command us in the scriptures how to live. And then we go off and do whatever we want. I don't want to love my neighbor. Lord Jesus, be gracious to us today. Give us eyes to see and minds that understand. Let us rest knowing that you can solve anything. That no one, no one could have conceived how you are going to save Elimelech's family. And no one could have conceived how you were going to save the world. Your birth in Bethlehem, Jesus, was completely unnoticed. And yet it was the beginning of everything. Thank you for your kindness to us. I pray for my brothers and sisters, for, for everyone who has suffered loss this year. And I pray, Jesus, that you would give them eyes to see all that brothers and sisters, that you would give them confidence and trust and patience to wait on you to work out your salvation at the right time and in the right ways. And Jesus, we pray, we're with Daniel. We don't pray this because you owe it to us. We're not righteous. We pray it because you're merciful. Jesus, be merciful to us. And so we pray all these things in your name, Lord Jesus, for we are yours. Amen.